Okay, so we're going to be um, continuing our study of uh, the life and the epistles of the Apostle Peter uh, this morning. Uh, I'm going to thank Drew for filling in for me last week when I was at home uh, sick. Um, but Drew uh, continued our study looking at um, one of the relationships that Peter writes about, that between a husband and a wife. And we'll pick up where he left off uh, last week with our study today. But I wanted to once again go back and do a quick review of where we've been and have a uh, look forward to where we're going to be going uh, today in our class. So we're studying from our two uh, or the two epistles that Peter wrote, um, which are named after the author, First and Second Peter. We're also looking at some of the events in Peter's life that kind of led to his writing. And so just remember that First Peter, where we're at uh, currently, has an overall theme of dangers from without the church. He was writing to the early Christians, preparing them for the impending persecutions that they would be facing. And one of the key words of this book is suffer. He uses that word a number of times throughout this writing. And then we'll be getting to 2 Peter here in a couple of weeks, where he turns his attention more to dangers from inside of the church, um, preparing the people for... Um, false teachers and uh, the need for uh, true knowledge, understanding of scriptures so they could um, combat the false teachings um, that they would experience. All right, so throughout really the second and third chapters of 1 Peter, um, he's going to go through or he has gone through several different relationships um, the early Christians are involved in. And he is describing the proper um, kind of form of these relationships and how Christians are to treat other individuals, other agencies that they are going to encounter. He started off in chapter 2 with the relationship between Christians and Christ, the cornerstone. And then he turned to how Christians are to relate to the world around them, how they are going to relate to civil authority and government. And then he finished up that section with specifically how Christians or how slaves really and their masters um, should have relationships with one another. And then moving on into chapter 3, he continues this theme by looking at the spousal relationship between husbands and wives. And Drew talked us through that section of scripture uh, last week. Where we pick up things today in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 is going to be one final relationship. And that is going to be our interpersonal relationships with other Christians. So you can see a theme right here. He's taken the Christian and described how the Christian relates to all these groups around them. But now he's going to finish up with how we relate to one another. What are the attitudes and behaviors we should, we should have when we interact with one another? And, you know, you may be asking, well, you know, you just said, Will, that this whole chapter or this whole book is about, you know, the impending persecution and preparing Christians for persecution. You know, what does all of this stuff right here have to do with persecution? Well, everything, really. Peter is preparing these people for a great persecution they will experience under Nero. And as part of that preparation, he wants to strengthen every relationship these Christians have with themselves 
and with those groups around them. Because the only way they're going to get through this great persecution is by having strong relationships with Christ. Knowing the proper way to interact with the world during a persecution. Understanding the role of a Christian and his or her government, even when the government is the source of the persecution. Slaves and masters, spouses, as well as fellow Christians. So all of these strengthening relationships that he's going through in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are part of that preparation, getting the Christians ready for this impending persecution. So that's kind of the setting for, you know, why he's going through all these different uh, Christian relationships. All right, so here's our timeline for, um, you know, Peter's life. You know, we believe he was born around the time of Christ, around the turn from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. He was called to apostleship, and then he was uh, on earth and interacted with Christ throughout the three years of Christ's ministry. He preached that first gospel sermon on Pentecost. And then during the latter part of his life, he traveled to Rome, um, and that's where we think he spent the last years of his life. And eventually he was killed or martyred um, around 65 A.D. Now, a few things we'll look at uh, today. So first of all, as was discussed uh, last week with the spousal relationship, uh, Peter was married. We have evidence in scriptures that he had a wife. And so we would assume his marriage took place at some point between his birth and his um, call to apostleship. And we know that he had that important conversation with Christ. You know, upon this rock I will build my church. That took place prior to Christ's crucifixion. And then after Peter preached that gospel sermon on Pentecost, we have at least three records of his being arrested during the early times of the church. And we'll look at those passages uh, here today as some context for this whole idea of persecution. But then also, thinking more towards the future, right? Soon after Peter wrote these epistles, um, Nero would instigate um, this great persecution of Christians, specifically in Rome, but then spread from out there as well. And tradition sort of tells us that both Peter and Paul, um, sorry, Peter and, uh, yeah, Paul, were, were both killed under Nero's uh, leadership. So that would be soon taking place after he wrote um, these two epistles, First and Second Peter. Okay, so the, the real theme for our class today, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22, is preparing for persecution. All right, that's what he's going to be doing right here, is continuing this last relationship, that between fellow Christians, and preparing them for persecution. All right. Before we dive into uh, 1 Peter, I want to go back to the book of Acts and look at some examples of Peter's own experiences uh, with persecution. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn back over to uh, the book of Acts, and we'll start with Acts chapters uh, 3 and 4, and look at a three different cases in the early church time period where Peter was arrested and faced his own persecutions. So in Acts chapter 3, um, Peter and John are going to be there at the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, Peter is going to heal a lame beggar um, who is uh, kind of sitting up there at the gates of the temple. 
And then after he heals this man in verse uh, 11, while he, that's the man that is being healed, uh, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And then Peter's going to um, uh, preach to all the people who've gathered around uh, following this, uh, this miracle, but following the, following the healing of this lame beggar. And so that takes us through really the rest of chapter 3 is the, this sort of sermon that Peter is going to be preaching. So then picking up now in the beginning of chapter 4. So he's just healed um, a lame man. He's just preached to all the people that have gathered around and have seen this miracle. And so chapter 4 begins, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All right, so Jewish leaders unhappy with Peter and John preaching about Jesus, who they just crucified, you know, not that long prior to this. And they're going to arrest Peter and John. All right, so then continuing on here in chapter 4, skipping down to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem uh, with Annas the high priest and, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, by this man, he is standing before you. And he's going to go on and talk about, again, Jesus being the cornerstone and do another um, sort of sermon, now this time specified to these Jewish leaders. So verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And then they're going to go on in verse 18 to charge them that they not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Um, But verse 19, Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So that's our first example of Peter's persecution, at least that we have a record of in Scripture. They just healed a lame beggar, they are arrested, and then they are instructed to no longer preach. And then Peter and John display great boldness right here, and they say, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. One thing that's interesting as you read through the Scripture in more detail in this passage, you know, Peter and John are together throughout all of this. Um, But who is it that's doing all the speaking? It's Peter. John is more or less silent, at least from the text, what it indicates. Peter's the spokesman during this whole thing. He's the one that speaks to the lame beggar. He's the one that preaches to the people. He's the one that responds to um, the Jewish leaders. Peter's the spokesman right here. 
again, kind of going back to our talk about Peter being kind of a, a, a true leader, even amongst the apostles. Peter is the spokesman, even during this section of scripture right here, even while John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, is right there in the thick of it with him. All right, now let's move over to chapter 5, a second example of Peter's persecution. Uh, look down at verse 17 of chapter 5. But when the high priest rose up and all who were with him, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And then they went on to the temple and began to preach. Now, this just tells you that apostles were arrested. It doesn't specify which apostles. We know a group of them were arrested. Um, but if you look down at verse 28, or sorry, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So we know Peter was part of this group uh, that was arrested and again, Peter's the one talking right here. Peter's the one responding to, so they're charged once again not to speak about Jesus anymore. And Peter's the one that responds, we must obey God rather than men. He's the one that has that kind of bold statement there. And it goes on and, and the leaders are ready to kill them. They just want to say, let's just kill all of them. And Gamaliel actually is the one that speaks up and says, you know, we can't kill these people. What if it turns out that they're right? What if the people, you know, revolt against us because we're killing them? So Gamaliel kind of calms down the leaders and they end up uh, beating the apostles, but not killing them. So they give them a good beating and then they let them go. Um, one other passage to look at uh, is in chapter 12. So look over to Acts chapter 12. So we're fast-forwarding in time a little bit. Um, Peter has already preached to Cornelius. Um, he had the dream with the sheet being lowered down from heaven with all the animals on it. Um, and then he, he goes and he talks with and preaches to Cornelius and his family and baptizes all of them. So in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, uh, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. This was during the Passover time. So, Herod has just killed one of the twelve apostles, the brother of John. And the people liked it so much, he's like, I can get some brownie points with the people. I'll just go and do the same thing to Peter. So then he goes and arrests Peter likely with the same intent of killing Peter since it made them so happy that he killed James. Um, verse 4, And when he had seized him, put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, um, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Um, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest in prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church is all uh, praying to God for, on Peter's behalf because Peter is now in prison. Uh, all right. So verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And then he's going to be um, saved from prison once again by an angel. And this is the second time an angel is sent by God to free Peter 
from prison. All right, so we have at least three cases just in the early time period of the church where Peter is arrested. Um, he's beaten. Uh, one of his fellow apostles, James, is killed by Herod. So Peter knew something about persecution. But he also had something about God coming in to rescue. He knew about salvation. Because in all three cases, his life was spared. In two out of the three, God intervened in a miraculous way by sending an angel to free him from prison. And then God also intervened with Gamaliel to ensure the apostles were not just killed on the spot. They were beaten, but they were let go, and they left with their lives. So Peter knew about persecution, and Peter knew about God's salvation from persecution when he wrote these letters to the early Christians. Now, I would wager a guess that Peter experienced more than just these three episodes of persecution. You know, we don't have a full record of his life, <clears throat> but it wouldn't be a, a big leap to say that Peter was persecuted in other ways at other times as well. All right? So, let's think about now the persecution that's going to be coming. That was Peter's past persecution. What about the persecutions that are on the horizon when he writes these two epistles? So, soon after Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, Nero was going to initiate a large persecution against Christians there within Rome. Uh, Nero was not all right in the head. He was, he was kind of crazy, um, as historians would kind of indicate. And... History kind of tells us that there was a, a huge fire that started there in the city of Rome, and it burned a large portion of the city. There was a rumor circulated amongst the people that Nero was the cause of this fire, that Nero started the fire just because of his own sort of level of insanity. And he wanted to throw suspicion off of himself, and so he chose the Christians to blame this fire on. Now, this is all extra-biblical evidence we have, um, but a historian, um, Tacitus, wrote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burned to, severe, to, burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Peter used the Christians as a scapegoat for this fire that erupted within the city of Rome. And because of that series of events, he caused the death of many, many Christians. But not just the death, really the torture of Christians. They were crucified. They were torn asunder by dogs. They were put up on poles and lit on fire as a, as a way of lighting his gardens in the evening. And this is what happened to Christians. 
These are the things that Peter is preparing the early church for. Because this is going to happen pretty soon after Peter wrote these epistles. So that's Peter's past. And this is going to be his and his fellow Christians' future. But not the distant future, in the very near future. All right, so, so keep those bookends right here in your minds as we now kind of dive into the text itself. All right, so turn back over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll begin in uh, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, have you heard the phrase, united we stand, but divided we fall? So, Peter knows that in order for these Christians to endure this impending persecution, they're going to have to be united. They're going to have to work together and stay close together, not just physically, but in all aspects, stay together. So this is the final relationship he's going to stress to prepare them for the impending persecution. Our relationships to one another. All right? And the first thing he says they need to do is have a unity of mind. If they are divided, if they are not unified as a group, then Christianity is going to fall apart during this massive onslaught of events that would lead to many of their deaths and sufferings that they would all experience to some degree or another. Galatians 5, verse 15. Paul is speaking um, about um, this argument between the Jews and the Greeks about persecution and the law of Moses. And he, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's bad enough when external forces are trying to consume us within the church. But when we are biting and devouring one another internally, think about how much worse that actually is. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says this in the context of arguments among Christians about who was more important based off of who, who was baptized by who. I was baptized by Paul. I have Apollos. I have Cephas. I'm of Christ, right? They're arguing over who's more preeminent just because of who baptized who. And Paul says, agree. Don't be divided. Be united. Be of the same mind and the same judgment. 
And that's what Peter is stressing once again in chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. The thing is, if you think about, you know, all of history, all events taking place across the world throughout history, when there is a great struggle that people experience, when there's a great hardship, what happens to people when they experience a great hardship? Exactly, they pull together. When there is a war, when there is a big disease like COVID coming on, you name the hardship, the foe, the struggle. If people pull together, they endure it. But if they don't pull together, they're not going to make it through. And the foe or the hardship is going to win out. That's what Peter's preparing them for right here. Like they've got to pull together to get through the hardship that's going to be coming on. But I want to pull that now to 2023 and ask, are we too comfortable? Because when we're comfortable and there's no external foe, we tend to create our own struggles within the church, right? We complain about this or that. We bite each other. We devour each other from the inside. We like to create some type of conflict where there's no external conflict coming at us. Now, when there's great persecution, the church pulls together and is unified. But sometimes without that external persecution, that external foe, then we tend to create our own foes from within, which is very much counter to the gospel and counter to what Paul and Peter both wrote about here in the church. So right now, I would say in the U.S., we're in a pretty good state, right? There's no massive persecution against Christians. You know, there's no external foe trying to come in and wipe us off the face of the planet. So we can't let that lack of external foe let us get too comfortable where we create our own foes from within. Number two, sympathy. Sympathy is the ability to step away from your own difficulties and struggles and think about someone else and the things that they are going through. All right? When we're persecuted, when we're facing our own struggles, whatever they may be, whether it's sickness, you know, family dynamic conflicts, you know, things at work, when we experience our own hardships, um, we tend to come into ourselves and not think about others as much. And Peter is warning against that. All right? They're going to be facing hardships, but that can't be a reason why they begin to ignore each other, right? And we all experience hardships at some level in some way. And when we do, there's a tendency to worry about ourselves and our family, right? We close the doors off and we build up that fort to protect ourselves. But we can't let our own struggles get in the way of our ability to interact with, sympathize with, minister to others because other people are also struggling at the same time. But in the same way, we can't let the walls that we build up prevent others from trying to help us, right? The walls that we build up due to our own struggles 
prevent us from helping others, but they can also prevent others from trying to help us. So don't build up those walls. When we face difficulties, whether it's sickness, whether it's a loss of a job, the death of a family member, financial difficulties, whatever it may be, right? Don't let the walls keep us as Christians from helping each other out. That's what Peter is stressing to these people here in the first century. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, Paul wrote, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Unity in suffering, unity in rejoicing. Paul also wrote Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Number three, brotherly love. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, and number three, brotherly love. This is really a foundational idea for all of these other aspects, right? Love is that thread that links all of us together. We can be unified. We can sympathize with one another all because of love. Love is that thread that links all of us together. John wrote in John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's no surprise that John wrote this. It's the apostle whom Jesus loved. It's the apostle that wrote about love in his gospel account and also his epistles. John stressed love and right here Peter is also stressing love. Uh, number four, I believe we're on now, a tender heart, compassion, the ability to be touched by the sufferings or plight of others. When your fellow Christians are suffering, for whatever reason, does that touch your heart? Do you have an impulse to do something to help them out? whether it's give them a call, send them a card, prepare a meal for them, sit beside them during worship service, right? Do you have that impulse? If you do, that's compassion. It's that sense of, I need to do something for someone else who is struggling. And Peter is saying right here, have a tender heart, a heart that's touched by the needs of other people. I agree completely. I mean, this is where we're supposed to be. You know, we are very much moved by children when something has happened to them and so forth. It touches our heart. But this is teaching us to do this way with everyone, not just those children that go around. I agree. This passage right here fits perfectly with our overall theme for this year of fit together. 
the way we can fit together is by exhibiting all these traits that Peter's describing right here. And these traits that he is, that he's emphasizing to the early Christians have just as much meaning for us today as they did in the first century. Unity, compassion, brotherly love, all these traits are the traits of a church that loves one another, a church that really fits together and that stays unified. The next one he goes through is have a humble mind. Humility, right? If we let pride get in the way, we're not going to be helping each other out. We're not going to rely upon God for that salvation. Peter knew about God's power to save because God saved Peter on multiple occasions from most likely death. Peter knew that getting out of prison, he wasn't going to save himself from prison. An angel, God himself, would have to intervene in some way to get him out of prison. He knew about the ability of God to save people physically from earth, but also that spiritual redemption just as much. And then the last one he goes through in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So, forgiveness. So this one, this one hits close to home, for me especially. When you're going through a tough time, because of illness, because of stuff at work, because of family dynamics, when you're going through a tough time, we have a tendency of lashing out at people. We have a tendency of having that quick response when someone talks to you that you didn't mean, but just on that impulse, you're already on edge because of your own you know, internal struggles, and we have a tendency of lashing out at people without thinking about it. It's just part of our human nature. What we need to get through that is forgiveness. Have a mind to forgive other people when they lash out at you. They probably didn't mean it in the first place. It was linked to their own internal struggles. But we have to be able to forgive other people, give them the benefit of the doubt. Even if you don't know what they're going through, it may be completely invisible, their own struggles. But that ability to forgive other people when they make these mistakes when they lash out at you or say an unkind word impulsively, that is what Peter is stressing. Because these people would be on edge. They were going to be on great edge because of the things they would be experiencing. And he was preparing them, again, for unity. To have unity, you've got to be able to forgive each other because stress is going to lead to conflict and impulsive words spoken. So forgiveness is also a key factor in this idea of coming together to endure what's coming on the horizon. All right, questions or comments before we jump into the last section of chapter three. Yes, James.
You mean the persecution as a whole? Yes. Well, I mean, I would say a, a little bit of both. I mean, people died, so that, that's bad all by itself. But persecution during the whole first century was one of the factors that led to people spreading out. And as people spread out, they carried the gospel with them. So persecution, while harmful to the people that experienced it, you know, I think God used it as a way of spreading the gospel even further than it would have perhaps been done already. That's, that's what I would say to that question. And I also think persecution strengthens people, right? I think the church was strengthened as a whole because people did come together to get through the persecution. Whether it was in Jerusalem or in Rome or anywhere else, right, the church was more unified um, because of the fact that we talked about today. Okay, <clears throat> we've got like five minutes to finish uh, several verses, so I'm going to have to kind of go through this quickly here. All right, so after he goes through and talks about this last relationship, how we relate to each other, preparing them for, um, for the persecution, he's going to make a call for boldness. All right, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, uh, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. All right. What harm can come to you if you are zealous and bold? But even if harm does come to you, three admonitions he's going to make. All right? Number one, do not fear. Number two, be prepared to make a bold but gentle defense of Christ. And number three, keep a clear conscience because accusations against you will be found unfounded, just as they were against Christ. We just read in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. All right, so his call to these people and to us as well is to be bold. Do not fear what may come about. Be bold, be brave to face what's coming at you. Always be ready to give a defense. When you're asked, when you're put on trial, just as Jesus was, just as Peter and John were in Acts, be prepared to give a defense, to justify what you're doing, but also have a clear conscience. Know that anything they throw at you is going to be found unfounded. There's no basis for the accusations that are going to be made against you because they're unfounded. Be bold, have a defense, and, and don't worry or have a clear conscience because these accusations that they'll throw at you are completely unfounded. So that's his call there in verses 13 through 17 is be bold. And then the last section here, he's going to give an example of boldness. 
Now we just said that the Jewish leaders were astonished by the boldness of Peter. He could have easily written about that example of boldness to the people, but he did not write about himself. He took the humble approach and used a different example of boldness, and that example was Christ. He chose to use Christ as the example of boldness to reiterate what he just said as opposed to his own boldness. So in verse 18, this is our example for boldness during suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then he goes on to give an example of, uh, of baptism. All right, a beautiful uh, summary of baptism that was based off of Christ himself. So Peter's going to make a call for boldness of the people and use Christ as his example of what you should imitate in your boldness under persecution or under suffering. And we'll finish up there for the day and begin chapter 4 next week. Thank you for your attention.